This is not the media. This is hell. The fall of Afghanistan's government and the return of the Taliban to power, just in time for the 20th anniversary of the attacks of 9-11, caught the United States government, the Biden administration, and the U.S. media all by surprise. It shouldn't have, but it did. There were clear signs that the Taliban were organizing, making alliances throughout the countryside, and its forces were on the move as one provincial government after another was falling to the Taliban. The hope was that the Afghan National Security Forces, which the U.S. had trained, armed, and heavily financed, could hold out for maybe a year, maybe two, against the Taliban, and during that time, progress could be made in ongoing peace talks. But those hopes disappeared as quickly as did the government's police and military uniforms, which were quickly discarded as those who had fought the Taliban for the past 20 years feared violent if not deadly, reprisals. The Afghan public, weary of 20 years of war, were expecting an intense battle between government forces and the Taliban and a potential fight for the nation's capital, Kabul. Instead, there was no engagement, and the Taliban made promises to uphold public safety. That there will be no looting, no taking of personal property, and no retribution as they declare that the war is finally over. However, there have been reports of some looting by Taliban soldiers and deadly retribution against those who supported the Afghan government and the U.S. And while the Taliban are preaching public safety, they also are engaging in acts of intimidation. All this while the Taliban tries to change from being a solely military endeavor to becoming a political movement. Considering the many factions within the Taliban, what that movement will be is anyone's guess. We'll try to figure out why the U.S. was surprised by the fall of Afghan President Ashraf Ghani's government and what may lie in ahead in the nation and what's in its people's future in a few minutes when we speak with writer, photographer, and researcher Martin Van Baylert, co-founder of the Afghanistan Analyst Network, which you can find at afghanistan-analysts.com. Org. You may have heard interviews that we've done with people from that organization in the past, including Kate Clark. You can look up those interviews by just searching on Clark at thisishell.com. Martin worked as an aid worker in Grozny, Chechnya, and in Taliban-ruled Kabul as a diplomat in Tehran for the Dutch Foreign Service during 9-11 and its aftermath, and as an analyst and advisor in Afghanistan, first as a political advisor to the EU Special Representative in Kabul, then as an independent advising the Netherlands Embassy on their work in Uruzgan province. Follow Martin on Twitter at MV Bailert, that is B-I-J-L-E-R-T. Find out more about Martin at Martin Van Baylert.com. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Egon Sheely. Anything new by you, Egon? Oh, you know, just a normal, normal 
Bunk Week, uh, <laughs> dropped a case of Topo Chico on my front porch and was cleaning up glass all like for about an hour last night. <laughs> Then I took the dog out and found a dead dog, you know, just Oh, that's nice. That's really nice. Did your dog roll in the dead dog? You know, thankfully, she's a little bit too high class for that, (laughs) but uh, I thought about it, for sure. Tell people what Topo Chico is. Oh, yes. Uh, For those who who aren't in the know, Topo Chico is the uh, fancy Mexican bubbly water that comes in glass bottles instead of aluminum cans, so... Me dropping it on my porch was uh, just so much fun. And you would suggest Topo Chico to your friends? Uh, absolutely. <laughs> uh, it's even been some of my passwords. So, you know, <laughs> have fun with that, hackers. We are looking for new volunteer board operators to join our staff here on This Is Hell. If you are interested in running the board, as Egon and Jess and Richard and Alex do, email me at chuck at com. chuck at com. If you'd like to join us here on This Is Hell, Email me at chuck at thisishell.com. We're looking for people who can run the board anywhere from once a week here at our studio above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago, with shows beginning at 10 a.m. Monday through Thursday. However, we are very flexible, and if you can only do it a couple of times a month, we can work around your schedule. This is your opportunity to have access to a professional studio for your own projects as well. This position does come with a modest stipend, so keep that in mind. If you are interested in becoming a board operator here on This Is Hell, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. Of course, with this position, you need to live in the Chicago area. However, we are also seeking people who can help with other work remotely, stuff that can be done no matter if you live in London or Laos. You, too, can be part of the This Is Hell crew wherever you live. For instance, every time we post a show online and at our site, we include a poll quote from the interview to give listeners a little taste of what they can expect when they do listen to the podcast. Again, if you are interested in becoming a producer here in our studio or are interested in contributing online, email us at chuck at com. But more importantly than any of that, Egon, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what is Chuck's password? <laughs> I think it's Topo Chico, isn't it? <laughs> that's that's correct, Pretty but sure. we won't tell you the string of numbers which follows it. <laughs> the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. We do not accept any grant money, any commercial money. You can leave your answer to this week's Question from Hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of Wednesday's, tomorrow's show, when we are announcing this week's winner, following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth, which now happens at 11 a.m. on Wednesdays. That's 11 a.m. Chicago time. Again, Jeff Dorchin will now be delivering his Moment of Truth every Wednesday. And beginning this week, we'll also be naming the Question from Hell winner on Wednesdays, and we'll explain all of that, why that's all happening tomorrow. During tomorrow's Moment of Truth, Jeff exposes the souls of pinker folk, not finger poke. I have no idea what that means. Egon will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell. Following our talk with Martine Van Baylert, not only can you email us, tweet at us, message us via Facebook, you can also send us stuff in the actual mail to This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon Avenue, second floor, 
Chicago, Illinois 60659. That's This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon Avenue, second floor, Chicago, Illinois 60659. And we got a guest suggestion sent to us via email at chuckatthisishell.com from Stephen in New Haven, Connecticut. Stephen writes, Alex and Chuck, I was surprised to see that Umar Haq has not been a guest on your show. I've been enjoying his articles on Medium.com for quite some time, including his most recent one, Why the World is Giving Up on Freedom, Why Neoliberalism is Ending in Authoritarian, Rising Around the Globe Again. TLDR, he gets it. More people should know about his work. Keep up the hellish work, Stephen. New Haven, Connecticut. So TLDR stands for too long, didn't read, but means more accurately what follows is a summary of what is written. In this case, Stephen in New Haven summarizes the Umer Haq writing as he gets it on neoliberalism and authoritarianism. Stephen, thanks for the suggestion. I had seen Umer's recent writing on climate change that I enjoyed very much, and we are now pursuing Umer to be a guest on the show next week. If he is, Stephen, we will thank you on air as we thank all of our listeners who give us a guest suggestion that we then eventually have on air. We also got a guest suggestion from a guest who suggested themselves. Neil from the University of Otago in New Zealand. And for whatever reason, that sounds really familiar. I swear to God, we've interviewed somebody from the University of Otago in New Zealand before. Neil writes, Dear Chuck and Alex, I hope this email finds you well. I'm ready to see whether you would be interested in doing an interview for This Is Hell on my book, Futilitarianism, Neoliberalism, and the Production of Uselessness, which will be published as part of the Political Economy Research Center series edited by Will Davies from Goldsmiths Press. The release date in North America and Europe is the 2nd of November this year. Myself and the press thought the book would be a great fit for your show, and as a regular listener myself, I think we would have a great discussion. As you'll see through the link uh, uh, below... Wendy Brown, Richard Seymour, Jessica White, and Adam Katzko have written generous blurbs, and they've all appeared on your show. I'm an Irish political and social theorist based at the University of Otago in, oh man, am I going to mispronounce this, Aotearoa, New Zealand, where I am a member of the Center for Global Migrations. I'm also a researcher for the radical left think tank, Economic and Social Research Aotearoa, E-S-R-A, I cannot pronounce that word, A-O-T-E-A-R-O-A, no idea. I hope to hear from you in due course. Kind regards, Dr. Neil Vallelli, researcher, economic and social research, research associate, Center for Global Migrations, University of Otago. Neil, you sold me at futilitarianism, neoliberalism, and the production of uselessness. Also, the fact that so many past guests have blurbed your book is a plus. So I forwarded Neil's email to Alex. We're looking forward to having Neil on the show to talk futilitarianism right around Election Day here in the United States, because that seems appropriate. If you'd like to suggest a guest to be on the show, even if it's yourself, or a topic to be discussed, email your guest or topic suggestion to chuck at thisishell.com. And if we have that guest on the show or discuss your suggested topic, we will thank you personally on air during that interview. Coming up, why the world was surprised at the speed at which the Afghan government fell and why they shouldn't have been. 
Egon will have more of your answers to this week's question from Al, which is, what is Chuck's password? What is Chuck's password? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can see all of our swag right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Again, you can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of tomorrow's Wednesday show when we are announcing this week's winner. Also, I experienced racism while on my annual summer family vacation in northern Michigan, which I will be sharing following our talk with Martine. So you got that to look forward to. And Egon will also be telling us who is on tomorrow's Thursday's show. Your eyewitness to grief. This is hell. The United States government was shocked at how quickly the government of Afghan President Ashraf Ghani fell. The Biden administration expected the Afghan National Security Forces to fight the Taliban for another year or two and maybe an opportunity to sue for peace. Clearly, that did not come to fruition. Instead, the Taliban is seemingly in control, but not quite entirely yet. And everyone is wondering what what the militant movement will look like when it becomes a political movement. Here to help us understand what has happened and what is happening in Afghanistan, writer, photographer, and researcher Martine Van Baylert is co-founder of the Afghanistan Analyst Network, which you can find at afghanistan-analyst.org. Welcome to This Is Hell, Martine. Yeah, it's really nice to be with you. This is some really fantastic writing. And again, as I was saying earlier, all of the work that I've been reading over at Afghanistan-analyst.org is just fantastic. I think it is the place to go to when people are trying to figure out what is happening in Afghanistan right now. And in your article that's titled, Is This How It Ends? With the Taliban closing in on Kabul, President Ghani faces tough decisions, which you posted back on Sunday, August 15th, when the government of President Ashraf Ghani had not quite fallen. You wrote, to be clear in practice, the fall of a provincial or district capital means that the civilian administration and the government troops have abandoned key government buildings. Last week, for instance, I spoke to someone in one of Herat's districts who said that his area was now under Taliban control, but the government buildings remained empty as their fighters had not yet arrived to take control. What does that reveal about the state of the Afghan government the U.S. was supporting when, even before the Taliban had arrived, they had abandoned their offices and police had left their positions? Did the Taliban so outnumber and outarm the government to the extent that giving up and leaving was really the government and their supporters' only option? Well, there's different things you can say about it. Um, but, and and I, I say it in the article as well, as I don't know if I should jump ahead already. Um, but basically, uh, large parts of the country were already very precariously in government control. Um, so in, in some parts of the country, if there was a district, the government would only be holding that district center. And often what that meant is that they held, as I said in that piece, the, the district governor's house, um, the police station and the army barracks, if there were any. And, um, and so those were very, very vulnerable positions. And uh, if, if they were attacked fiercely, they would leave. And then on paper, that whole district would fall to the Taliban. So in the weeks um, leading up to, to the fall of, of Kabul, that's what we saw, this sudden sweep of the Taliban through the country and picking off all these districts that were really precarious. Um, but what surprised us and lots of people is that other districts were also falling. And so initially th- that looked like a domino effect, like, like because they were sweeping that 
um, that troops were afraid and there were there were reports of uh, violence and, and uh, brutality as well. But what became more and more clear was that um, a lot of the troops were not being uh, well supported, they were not being supplied, they were on their own. Um, and then what became more and more clear is that there were a lot of deals made as well. And initially it seemed like a lot of these deals were made in the spur of the moment um, because troops thought they, you know, if they weren't going to be supplied anyway, why then fight until you're either killed or have to, have to run? Um, but as time went by, and particularly when the big city started falling, it started to become clear that the Taliban had been preparing this for a very long time and, uh, and had made a lot of deals in advance or had made the contacts in advance so that the deals could be made very quickly when, when people saw that it was necessary. And you point out that it is important to note that the country did not go from relative stability to utter chaos overnight. Why is that so important to understand? How do we understand the fall of the government and the rise of the Taliban better when we recognize it did not go from relative stability to utter chaos overnight? Well, I think a lot of people who don't follow Afghanistan very closely and who who've basically started following it with the withdrawal of the um, the U.S. troops, in in their mind, it often looks like, you know, the, the country was kind of working um, and was kind of under government control as long as the troops were there. And then after they were going to leave, it became unclear what would happen um, and whether it would hold, whether it was already very fragile and and over the last few years had gotten more and more fragile all the time and um the taliban was already sweeping territory more slowly and it and it went back and forth the government would then take districts back and then the taliban would would take it again but it but the government was slowly losing terrain and so it didn't come completely out of the blue it was basically it was a huge acceleration of what was already going on and the thing that was most surprising about it is that it happened before the U.S. troops had gone, because I think um, particularly in the U.S., but in general, there was this kind of expectation that the Taliban would um, would would heed the timeline, the timeline, which was the, the 31st of August, so that at least until then it would kind of hold together um, and then we would see what would happen. So was that naive? Um. Well, I, I mean, it happened to all of us, including the Taliban. Even, I mean, even the Taliban leadership uh, indicated that this went way faster than they thought it would, and particularly the fall of Kabul took them by surprise. Um, so I think part of it was naive. I think part of it was that we were all still very much thinking in the situation as it was instead of um, as it would be, and that we, we didn't actually... Um, clock the fact that the Taliban had been preparing for this probably for a year or two or um, at least uh, since they started uh, talking uh, around the deal. Um, so yeah, it was it was a little bit naive maybe, but it was also, it went a lot faster than anyone thought. You write that a deluge of carefully curated images and videos on social media for those who know where to look has accompanied the rapid fall of so many provincial capitals. How difficult is it for those videos to be found online? And how long had this process been taking place before your writing on August 15th? Because I'm wondering how long the government had been falling before U.S. and Western media started reporting on the fall. Was this a surprise simply because the U.S. media was ignoring the fall of the Afghan government? Do you think the media contributed 
to that surprise? Well, I mean, the big surprise was is that districts started falling that had never been taken by the Taliban before, and that were also expected to hold out because they were not their their population was not pro-Taliban at all, and particularly when c- cities started falling, because I had actually thought, looking ahead, that for quite a while the Taliban would would take the the rural areas and the provinces, but that the government would hold the cities, and if the government troops had fought. And if they had been um, clearly coordinated and controlled, they could have held the cities. Um, and and the Taliban would have held back probably because, I mean, the, they would have tried to maybe take one or two cities, but but they wouldn't have had mass assaults because that would, would also have led to so many casualties. Um, so, yeah, I think the biggest surprise was the the number of deals were made and also at at what kind of senior level they were made and how much those deals had penetrated the whole security apparatus basically um and and that one we in hindsight we could have known but um that it would have been this successful this rapidly yeah that was that was a surprise but you also point out in your writing that there was this idea that the Afghan National Security Forces could fall back to the cities and defend the cities that way. And maybe then they could have held on to the cities, as you were saying, and maybe for the next year or two, as the Biden administration had hoped, they could hold off the Taliban and possibly sue for peace. So why do you think those ideas were rejected? Why do you think the Afghan National Security Forces didn't fall back to protect the major cities? Well, we saw whole corps, army corps surrendering, um, and sometimes after fierce fighting, but sometimes not really. Um, so, I, I, and I think the um, the knowledge that the U.S. was leaving and that that the uh, U.S. backup was leaving um, the troops, uh, just looking ahead, um, feeling unsupported by their own government. The, the government was was fractured; was not able to. Um, to make up his, its mind uh, how to do this. There was very little strategic leadership. Um, so I think a lot of senior officials and, and senior security officials just decided to basically cut the process short. I mean, why fight for another year or two years if it's, if there's, if it's clear who's going to win? Because I think when they looked at their own government, they just couldn't see how it was going to win and also they couldn't see how long term it was going to hold together and then yeah why not just immediately end up at at where you're going to end up anyway and you write that the taliban appear to have media teams accompanying their fighters as they take control of the cities or at the very least an international uh, or intentional i should say intentional media engagement strategy much of the footage seeks to convey a message of law and order and seems intended to reassure and intimidate in equal measure, reassure and intimidate. To what extent can public safety and protection win the hearts and minds, if you will, of Afghan people who have been in seemingly endless war? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the big messages that the Taliban uh, is trying to give, particularly after they took Kabul and and basically they declared, you know, we're no longer fighting now. Um, so they declared this amnesty. I mean, with with all caveats, whether that can be trusted or not. But they're but they're flipping their role, saying we're no longer fighting a government. We're we're no longer um, fighting a war that will harm people as well. We're now going to bring uh, stability, um, and it does have 
uh, a certain attraction. Um, as you said, there's, I mean, there's been uh, war for such a long time in Afghanistan, in different phases, different places, um, but for large parts of the, um, the rural areas, it's been really brutal for the last few years, and particularly in areas that were contested, where it would go, where it would go back and forth between the Taliban and the, the government, um, where the Taliban uh, was strong and, and could possibly win because that's where the, uh, the uh, airstrikes would come in and the, the, the bombardments, which really, um, yeah, just terrified people. Um, so just the idea that the war might be over uh, and that it might be clear now who has won, um, even though a lot of people are incredibly worried about what kind of a regime they might now uh, now get and what it will look like and how it will relate to the rest of the world the the this this hope that at least the war might be over and that their country is not contested is a is a huge one but can the taliban bring about any more stability than the afghan government could of ashraf ghani i mean they're going to be facing many of the same economic and financial problems that the Afghan government faced. And on top of it now, uh, the IMF is not releasing funds that uh, the Afghan government had access to to possibly help in humanitarian programs, let's say. So to what extent can the Taliban or anybody bring stability to Afghanistan? Well, when it comes to stability in terms of safety, what they... um, uh, what they try to come in on is this this reputation of being um, serious, austere, um, strict, uh, just. Um, so basically contrasting themselves to the previous government, which they would describe as corrupt, um, cynical, uninterested in the plight of people, which to a certain extent uh, was true. And um, also in some of the, in areas that came under their control, it differed um, depending on, on who ruled it. Um, but they would, uh, I mean, in the areas where there were um, leaders and commanders that were predatory and that were violent, having the Taliban come in could be a relief for people because they did uh, establish a, a kind of safety. They did establish the rudimentary uh, justice system. Um, in other places, they themselves were the ones who were violent and br- brutal. So it was a, a bit of a mixed picture. Um, but they do have the reputation from the 90s uh, where they swept in our, uh, during the Civil War um, and replaced violent, abusive commanders um, and then established a, a, a regime which was kind of miserable and joyless um, but but there is there is this uh, uh, this idea that they that they could bring stability that they um, uh, just might be kind of cleaner than the the other government could, could be more Islamic um, so they have that but there is this huge problem and this huge worry about the financial situation of Afghanistan I mean even before the Taliban took over there were warnings that uh, there's a there's a humanitarian crisis coming. Um, and so now, even with less money coming in, with a government that's in disarray because they're obviously needing to rearrange, you know, who's going to head the government and how to manage it. Um, yeah, that's, a, that's a, a huge concern. And, I mean, the world, 
the world is, hasn't decided yet how to deal with the Taliban and how to relate to them and whether to boycott them or to punish them or to ignore them or, or to deal with them somewhat. Um, and it's completely understandable that you take time to see what they do, not just what they say, but what they do. But Afghanistan as a country doesn't really have that time to, to be left a couple of weeks or a couple of months without support. You mentioned government corruption. What role do you think government corruption played in uh, the Afghan National Security Forces surrendering to the Taliban? You mentioned how they were poorly armed. You mentioned in your writing how they were not paid. Uh, there's uh, footage now of large caches of weapons for the ANSF that were never even opened from their packages. So to what degree do you think the uh, uh, the military forces just said, you know, it's either fighting the Taliban to su- or supporting this corrupt government. And because they're corrupt, we don't want to fight for them anymore. Do you know if that was a contributing factor to why they didn't fight? It definitely was. I mean, I, I, a lot of the, a lot of these forces have been fighting for a long time under really, really difficult circumstances. Um, yeah, just out of desperation. I was also talking to people while this was going on who were holed up somewhere in a, in a governor's compound um, and and who said, yeah, we've been calling for ammunition and we're running out. And and so, yeah, it was really shocking for me to then later see all the the immense weapons caches and to, to just realize that it was all there. It was just never given to the troops. And for years, uh, soldiers have been complaining about that. And uh, so it was definitely definitely a, a factor, particularly because it was clear that, that it was going to end, that it wasn't going to remain. And then why, why keep fighting? You also write that there have also been reports and images from districts that show open schools and humming bazaars, indicating a desire by at least one part of the Taliban to offer an acceptable face. And I think this is an issue that people might be having here in the United States. I know I am. Uh, Often we think of the Taliban as one force, one very centralized and organized force, There, like there is no divisions within it. So how many parts are there to the Taliban? How united or divided is the Taliban? Yeah, we're guessing a bit when it comes to to things like, you know, what kind of rules will that will they um, assert? Because they've never been very clear about it. They've always indicated like, you know, we've, we've changed. We, we still think the same as as we did then, but we've changed because we were inexperienced then. And now now we know better, but they never made it concrete um, what exactly they meant. Uh, but we are seeing different. We are seeing things now that were would were really you'd never see in the '90s. Um, girls going to school. Uh, we've seen a discussion in Herat with the university uh, on how to segregate the university so it would end co-ed education, um, which people complain about. But it does mean. I mean, it is a discussion on how how having men and women go to university, which would be unthinkable in the '90s. Um, and so there, yeah, there's this, you can, you, we hear echoes of this tension. And so I think this is also the time when there are still a lot of things possible. So the different parts are trying to pull or create space um, as much as they can. But we don't know who's going to, we don't know what the shape is going to be of the government and who's going to make the decisions ultimately. What we, the people we hear and see most of are the political commission, 
the ones who were also in Doha doing the negotiations with the Americans um, and the spokespeople. And like in any government or or institution, the the outward looking um, parts of that organization are often the most um, open-minded or, or can at least communicate in ways that the outside world can understand. And so that's the part we're seeing now. And so it's not clear if they're also the ones um, who are going to make the final decision um, of what's possible. But uh, yeah, like, like you discussed before, um, they are very much um, working on their image. They're, they did this through the social media campaign. They're doing it through their uh, spokespeople, through their messaging. And it's partly to the West. It's partly to the outside world um, to, to show who they are now. A large part of it is to the Afghan people. Um, because I do think they are genuinely, and whether it's followed up by actions or not, but they're, they're portraying this, or at least trying to establish themselves as we are now the rulers of the whole country and going to try to find a way uh, how to do that. But let's see how that works out within a very strict interpretation of Islam. Um, and also, they're not only looking to the West, they're also obviously looking to the broader Islamic world as well. We are speaking with writer, photographer, and researcher Martin Van Baylert, co-founder of the Afghanistan Analyst Network, which you can find at afghanistan-analyst.org. You write the U.S., who seem to have been caught up in their own timeline thinking, was also unprepared like Afghanistan. In their view, it seems the Taliban were poised to begin their offensive in earnest after the 31st of August, and the rapid ascent of the Taliban appears to have been take, taken them by surprise. Ironically, they are now hastily flying in 3,000 soldiers to support an evacuation, which may in turn disrupt commercial flights and complicate the possibility of for others to leave. One of the criticisms of the U.S. withdrawal has been that the evacuation is disorganized and chaotic. What do you see as the impact of what you call U.S. timeline thinking? What effect did U.S. timeline thinking have on the evacuation process? Why does timeline thinking lead to being caught by surprise? Well, I think in general, the timeline thinking meant that the U.S. kind of stopped paying attention to what was happening on the ground because it was going to become irrelevant. It was, going, it was no longer going to be their problem. And, um, and what was really clear in the last months or the last year is that the, the focus was just to, to tying this up, to getting the troops out and to getting them out um, without headlines, without incidents or events, um, and then kind of closing the chapter. And so, um, yeah, it, I think it meant just paying less attention to what was going on on the ground, um, not really caring about uh, the deal that was made with the Taliban or its consequences for uh, for Afghanistan, because the, in the end, the, the deal is also a really, the, the U.S.-Taliban deal was a really important um, factor in uh weakening the government and uh, and leaving them with nothing to deal with the Taliban and making it clear that the Taliban was going to have the upper hand. In terms of the evacuations, it's really, I mean, yeah, I have, I have very mixed feelings about the, the evacuations and, and um, just the way, because of the um, the haste and the hurry and the, the, the short time there is and kind of the the, the panic that came from the surprise. Um, there's now this whole 
huge operation to pull out the people who, quote unquote, helped us in our, quote unquote, successes there or in our, in our work there. And um, as if it's so easy to determine who, who these people were or who the allies were, um, it also really strengthens this image of a, of a country um, that, that needs outside help and when it doesn't, falls apart and then the people need to be pulled out again. It, it flattens the story when looked at from the outside. And um, it's also, it's just really difficult also seeing friends in Afghanistan trying to decide whether to try to leave or not, because as, as are, there's, is often the case, there are just no really good options and they need to make this decision on, on really not enough information. Um, but yeah. And you tricky one. Yeah, and you're right that all in all the most significant turnaround is probably the one experienced by the many Afghans who had not yet clocked how determined the U.S. government was to leave, and with so little regard for what it was leaving behind. What was the U.S. leaving behind, and how could the U.S. have shown more regard for what it was leaving behind? Well, a lot of Afghans felt that the U.S. did basically hand Afghanistan over to the Taliban with the U.S.-American deal. They hadn't expected it to go so fast and so dramatically. And so, yeah, so basically, yeah, like I said, but they, but it was clear that the, Tala, that the U.S. was going to give the Taliban whatever they wanted um, in, in exchange for being able to leave. And that was really, um, I, I think a lot of Afghans had thought that the U.S. was more genuine in how it cared about um, democracy and human rights and, and women's rights um, because it was clear that that was going to suffer. And particularly towards the end, it was, like I said, it was just the whole focus was um, to get it done within the timeline. Um, and then whatever happens after that was no longer the, the responsibility of the U.S. And it isn't the responsibility. It, you know, it doesn't need to be the responsibility of the U.S. all the time. But they had an opportunity when they were negotiating with the Taliban to try to get a deal that would have left um, Afghanistan in a much better position and the Afghan government in a better position. The only thing is, is that that would have uh, um, that threatened to slow down the process and they might not have been able to then uh, uh, conclude it when they wanted to. Um, but it wasn't even properly tried. And you mentioned the coming and seemingly inevitable Taliban rule, which it needs to be said is not the case. Keeping in mind that writing is from August 15th and things are happening fast and we'll be getting to your two more recent pieces shortly. Why do you believe Taliban rule was not inevitable back in August 15th and you still believe it's not inevitable? Um, I need to see what I exactly said there. Um, I, yeah, I, I, I think towards the end, it didn't... Um, if the go when the Taliban um, surrounded Kabul, they they uh, there was an agreement that they wouldn't take Kabul by force and that they wouldn't go in, and they didn't. Um, and so at that point, there was still a possibility to uh, to negotiate, and that was the plan also. Um, and the UN could have gotten involved, the Americans couldn't have gotten involved. Um, the sudden departure uh, of the president, and it's still not clear what, what happened around that, just meant that there was no government left, that, that Kabul was empty. 
Um, and uh, yeah, basically, then it did be become inevitable. The Taliban just went in um, to make sure there was no vacuum. And, uh, and then they had Kabul. You write, the government in turn seems to have been caught in a surreal bubble while the Taliban were advancing senior government officials were still releasing statements about donor-driven ceremonies and meetings, although these events were, in most cases, milestones necessary for the next tranches of aid to be dispersed. They projected a complete lack of urgency to the population, which made the government look detached and preoccupied with formalities and frivolities. Was the government distracted by its financial problems, or were they trying to distract the public from the threat of Taliban with everyday politics? I think a bit of all of it. I think, I think the government itself also didn't, either didn't realize the urgency or didn't know how to deal with it. Um, but also the donors, because there were joint donor, uh, government and donor events, um, where the conclusions were that they needed to do more against corruption and things like that. It, it was just, um, I guess it's also really hard for institutions and bureaucracies to um, to step out of business as usual. Uh, the, the president didn't declare a state of emergency or martial law or anything like that. So it was, yeah, it was almost like they, they tried to continue as normal as if that would keep up morale. And um, in a way, they almost treated it as a war of morale, that if, if we can just make people believe that, that it will hold, then it will hold. And... Um, and I mean, some of the that are also echoes of what we also what, what could also be seen in the international intervention and in with the international military. That if we just project um, a position of strength or of optimism or of success, then people will start believing in it and it will get its own dynamic. Um, but yeah, no, it 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 was quite absurd. You also mentioned the current international frenzy to leave Kabul and take with them whoever they can seems inspired by the anticipation of mass reprisals, as well as a more general fear of a breakdown of order, a loss or absence of discipline within the Taliban, but also among remaining government forces, as well as civil unrest and crime. So are reprisals likely? Because there's a sense in much of the U.S. media that they are inevitable and as we've learned from so many guests that nothing is really inevitable yeah yeah um well there was there was there was fear for widespread chaos um which would also uh, unleash like criminal elements and looting um you know anyone who who can then wants to get rid of old enemies um there was a fear of systematic uh, widespread reprisals and uh, and killings and, and detentions, widespread violence. Um, we're not seeing that, um, but it's but it's clearly not as smooth as that. The Taliban is presenting, basically saying no one has anything to fear, and if if anyone harasses you, you should tell us, and and we'll uh, we'll do something about it. I mean, there are. There are reprisals, there have been people killed, there are lots of people in hiding because um, you know, men have come to their door of their house looking for them or to the houses of their family members. Um, so there is, uh, you know, there was an, even though there's an amnesty, there, there's clearly a, um, a, th a threat for a lot of people. And uh, whether, it's, whether it's Taliban or whether it's other networks, I mean, like I said before, uh, um, 
a situation of upheaval like this just gives there's so many opportunities for for people to use that as a cover um, to get rid of enemies or to to strengthen their hand or to to extract revenge and um, it it's not it's um, it's good that it's not as bad or brutal as we maybe maybe feared but it's still bad enough and and um, yeah it, it's it's not very uh, heartening to see a Taliban saying um, this is all propaganda and uh, if there is something please let us know and we'll do something about it so what to what extent do you think the Taliban can employ their rules with a smiling face can they soften their rules or would that cause divisions among different Taliban groups yeah you mean in terms of the very strict lifestyle rules exactly or, or the, yeah um, that's the big question uh, for the coming time, and there's quite a bit of speculation about that as well. Um, whether the foot soldiers will, will accept it, um, there seems to be a, a, a divide between the, the eastern Taliban and the southern Taliban, with the southern being more con- conservative. I mean, in the 90s already, we saw that at that time they were really strict. The girls' schools were completely closed, even primary schools. But we would have Taliban commanders who would be sending their own girls to school abroad. Um, and so, yeah, there, it, it's it's very clear that it, that it's um, that that they're yeah that they're divided. But it's also clear that they will not go. Well, no, let's let's not say it's clear. It looks at the moment like they will not go as extreme um, as it was then. But uh, but there are also uh, people that say. Um, they're waiting to clamp down uh, until the, the foreign forces have gone, until the media attention dies down a bit, um, until there's nothing that can be done about it, which is also a possibility. So the U.S. has said that they would punish Afghanistan, depending upon a number of things, including how the Taliban government treats women and, as President Biden referred to them, treats little girls. Given those conditions... Can a humanitarian crisis be averted? Would would that just another and, and uh, contribute to a growing humanitarian crisis, just like the IMF funds being cut off to the Afghanistan government? Well, the question is is also um, how you know, how bad does it need to be to be, or what's the threshold for punishment? Um, particularly because I, I think the expectation was that uh, sooner or later the Taliban would take over. Um, it's just that the West feels very responsible now because it's still happening on their watch. Um, but and also whether punishment is the best way to um, uh, to have an, an influence on it. And uh, yeah, I, I I think that uh, there needs Basically, there needs to be an engagement with the Taliban as soon as it's clear what their shape is going to be and, and how they're going to operate, um, which which is uh, an, an engagement of, of um, a conversation. The possibility of um, a punishment, but that that's not where you start. Where you start is the possibility of conditional, uh, the conditional release of the, the foreign reserves. Um, I mean... Basically, if the world is going to give the message like we're not going to acknowledge you and we're going to look for ways to punish you, it's going to be very difficult to um, to get them to change. And also, I don't think that the um, 
that what the Taliban is showing at the moment is extreme enough for that position. They really, they need monitoring. Um, uh, there need to be, uh, yeah, there, there needs to be the possibility of consequences. But at the moment, it's kind of out of balance. In some later writing of yours, you point out that when it comes to the Taliban and Afghan government uh, negotiations that were happening before the government fell, you write, it is not clear to what extent these talks actually took place or were very serious. But what is clear is that somewhere in the middle of all of this, President Ghani and his main confidants left the country. Senior government officials who had stood by Ghani were furious. In a measured but pointed live video posted on Facebook, Dr. Abdullah Abdullah, who leads the High Council for National Reconciliation, which was expected to lead the intra-Afghan peace talks with the Taliban, said that God would judge the former president, while Defense Minister Bismillah Khan Mohammadi cursed Ghani in a tweet saying that he had tied our hands behind our back and sold us. What could Ghani have done if he stayed? What good would it have done the Afghan people or even the people of Kabul if he had stayed? Well, if he had stayed, there would have been a government. And so there would have been a conversation. And uh, that was the idea, that he would be in the palace, that the Taliban would be uh, outside the city, and then that there would be talks either in, uh, there was a team in uh, Islamabad, there was a team in Doha, Um, maybe there could have been talks even in Kabul. Um, But there would have been two parties um, who could have had a conversation. But with him leaving without telling anybody, that meant the practical dissolution of the government and then there was there was nothing left and particularly the fact that he didn't tell anyone um yeah the people around him felt incredibly betrayed he later had a video saying um i got uh, news from my security detail that there had been a uh, an assassination team they had already arrived into the palace i needed i needed to leave otherwise if they killed me, I don't care, but it would have been the honor of the nation. I don't think there are very very many people who believe this. I don't know if it's true or not, but the what's clear is that when when he left it was it was the end. It was the end of the republic. There was nothing to talk anymore. And so the whole air was taken out of this idea of talking about an interim or a unity government. They're still talking about it. Um, but it's not clear whether that's kind of you know, the winning of time until the 31st of August or whether there are actual talks going on. And you write that former President Ghani has, in the meantime, resurfaced after he left Kabul unexpectedly on Sunday, the 15th of August, shortly after the UAE confirmed that they had welcomed President Ashraf Ghani and his family into the country on humanitarian grounds. Ashraf Ghani addressed the nation in a pre-recorded video on his Facebook page in which he gave his version of Sunday's events. There's a lot of narrative building going on, on at the moment on all social media channels. He explained that he had not wanted to leave, but had done so to avoid bloodshed. And because his security detail warned him, the Taliban fighters who did not speak any language of this country had entered the palace and were searching for him. This does not seem to fit the timeline of events as generally known. Not to dismiss Ghani's claim that Taliban fighters who did not speak any language of this country, but outsiders are often used as a way to delegitimize any movement. How often had Ghani employed those who did not speak any language of Afghanistan for challenges the government faced? And and are those claims accurate? Were there real outsiders that were overthrowing the Afghan government, or is that an inaccurate statement? 
Well, it's clear that, uh, Pak- I mean, he was referring to Pakistanis here, and uh, it's clear that Pakistan has um, uh, has supported uh, the Taliban. Um, and at, at some point, there was also a, a whole campaign on, um, on Twitter and on social media uh, to sanction Pakistan. That was just before the fall of, uh, of Kabul. And, um, and you know, some Afghans see that as a, this as a, um, as a Pakistani uh, occupation. Um, I mean, that's an exaggeration. But, uh, but yeah, it is, there's a very strong streak in Afghan politics of um, blaming Pakistan for, uh, for uh, yeah, basically all the wars in, uh, in Afghanistan. Um, and particularly for uh, uh, for the Taliban and the resurgence uh, of the Taliban, and uh, in particular Amrullah Saleh, the vice president, um, who is still in the country in the Panjshir Valley, uh, he very much uh, blames Pakistan for this. And you write the coming days and weeks should bring more clarity on what this will look like: the Taliban as a political movement for the world, the Afghan people but also for the Taliban themselves, though they are not as unprepared as they were in the 1990s, having practiced with some form of governance, at least at the local level, they will still need to uh, tread new territory. The transition from being a warring group that uses, among other things, terror to achieve its goals, to a government that will be held to account and must learn to leave space for a plurality of opinions, politics, and lifestyles will not be easy. Do you know what does that governance at the local level that they have practiced since they were forced out of power look like? How, how would you describe it, or, or is that still kind of uncertain what it looks like? Well, they've done they've had governance at the local level at the district level, um, so that is still fairly uh, fairly low. But um, they would have a, a court system, rudimentary court system, um, ta- taxation, uh, and often what they had was a hybrid system together with the government. Um, so, for instance, they would take over the education, the schools in the area, and um, do the monitoring of the schools, and then the government would still pay the salaries. And so, there, there, yeah, there is already some practice with working together with the with the existing bureaucracies, um, and also uh, um, an acknowledgement of the importance of things like education and and health, because that's a big change in just Afghan society. That um, yeah, in, in 20 years, even in remote and uh, conservative rural areas, things like education and health and other services are really seen as, as important. Um, and, the, and the Taliban is also much more aware of that. Um, so yeah, but, but they'll now need to uh, tap into the government apparatus as, at a much higher level and they'll actually need to start managing it and probably pull in people who, who have uh, experience in this. And you're right that these are all just statements that the Taliban are making, and they come while everything is still in flux. They do not prove that there will be freedoms, but they do show that decisions on balancing the competing demands of different constituencies are still in the making. You know, they also show that the Taliban are competent in communications and have very good media capabilities. Is this all message? Can the Taliban become the Afghan government through media skills and communicating the message of their political movement? rather than through force. Can the Taliban govern without force? Yeah, that's a, um, that's a good question. I, in, the, in the districts that they, um, that they ruled, um, they, they governed, um, but it, was, it is often with the, was often with the threat of force. I mean, a lot of it will, just de- will depend on um, whether, they, whether they can uh, 
kind of capitalize on this this hope that's there underneath this fear that um, yeah that it will bring stability um, that they will be less corrupt that they will not be dysfunctional that they will be able to rein in all these men with guns that are ro roaming every town and every city now um, so yeah they'll very quickly need to start doing things like uniforms and disarmament and um, yeah it, it's it's hard to predict whether they'll be able to do that. Um, I think they're much more aware of the necessity of it, but whether they'll be able to do it is a, is a, is a big question. You quote a critic of former President Ashraf Ghani saying that uh, Ghani had held the government and the peace process hostage. Is that an accurate statement? And, uh, and for what? What was their ransom, if you will? A lot of people see it like that. A lot of people um, uh, think that he was—he didn't want the peace process. He didn't want to deal um, with the with the Taliban. They felt that he was stubborn, uh, that he micromanaged the government. So some people think it was um, uh, just his character. Uh, other people start thinking that there there might be a plot um, uh, that he had, that he had some some great plan. But there are. People now, I mean, this, this statement was uh, Yunus Qanuni, so one of the northern leaders who fought the Taliban in the 90s and who's now talking about, talking to the Taliban about a, a national unity government. Um, yeah, he says, at, at least we're, we're rid of this obstacle, which is quite a big, um, big thing to say. Like, we're going to talk to the Taliban because at least now the president is not standing in the way. <laughs> That's quite a lot to say, and it's something that we're not hearing here in the U.S. You write the province of Coast, the province of Coast saw a procession on 17th of August, waving the black, red, green republic's flag. While on August 18th, Taliban fighters responded violently to a demonstration in Jalalabad, in which the Taliban flag was replaced, killing at least three men and wounding several others. The Taliban spokesperson subsubsequently sought to defuse future protests, responded by saying that people could raise whatever flag they wanted. Now, the New York Times reported that story with the headline, Taliban silences foes in dissent. So how much has the Taliban silenced protesters and those who oppose the Taliban? Yeah, I mean, the, the flag processions was unclear whether it was a protest or because it was also um, the next day it was Independence Day. So it was also traditionally a day that you would go out waving flags. And um, some of it was provocation just to see how the Taliban would uh, react. Some of it, I think, was just asserting this is what this is what is important to us, and that's also what we see in Kabul with some small uh, demonstrations of women demonstrating. Is uh, yeah, it's basically people wanting to claim the space, um, but the, the, in the, a lot of places, those the flag waving um, groups in crowds, or even just boys on their bicycles with a flag. Um, were treated, yeah, were treated violently and um, beaten up, and there was also the shooting, and so that's there. You can really see how the fighters on the ground, um, who are de facto making the rules of of the day, have a very different opinion. They apparently see this flag as a, um, a symbol of the previous government and want to get rid of it, and see see it as a, um, yeah, as dissent. Whereas the leadership are saying we respect this flag and so yeah that's something that that will also need to become clearer
And you write that many well-known women's rights activists, human rights defenders, and media personalities are still not on any country's evacuations list, which was written a week ago, which seemed to focus on nationals and employees. These people are known to the embassies. They were often invited to receptions and introduced to high-level delegations and saw their work trotted out as a success for the West, even if the struggle was their own. They became high-profile in part because they were courted, quoted, and put forward as the faces of the new Afghanistan. They are brave, but also at risk and in need of, at the very least, temporary shelter, a safe harbor where they can sit out the transition, observe the emergence of the new political order, and assess its associated risks. So why the focus on translators and not those whose work was claimed by the U.S. as a national success story? What does that say to you about the U.S. government and its relationship with human rights concerns? Yeah, it's the U.S. government. Other countries did it as well. It was very much a focus on the people who had worked for us, quote unquote. So um, uh, the staff, um, the people who were on contract. Uh, also, people had to prove direct links to the to a certain country to be able to be taken out of that country. But basically, these are countries saying we're looking after our own, um, rather than saying we're looking after. Yeah, the people who we've relied on, um, who we who we've worked together in this big project, not just because they were our assistants, um, and who are who are now really in danger, also because we made them high profile, because we we uh, yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a little bit better now, but it's still a problem. Um, it's still there's still a lot of people who who don't have direct links to countries. Um, who who are not sure they can get out. I think it's also has to do with the fact that a lot of countries see it as the Taliban are going to um, take revenge on people because they were related to us. And so it's very much a centering also of the West. And um, uh, whereas a lot of people who are in trouble are in trouble for quite complicated Afghan reasons um, who, uh, which is which are linked to the previous government and linked to the international intervention, but not that directly as uh, as a lot of countries think. Just a couple more questions for you, Martine. Uh, at a press conference, members of the U.S. media were concerned about the closing of the U.S. embassy in Kabul and how that might limit U.S. intelligence capabilities, leading to the U.S. being vulnerable to domestic attacks here in the United States by the Taliban. But from your reporting, it appears that even with the embassy in Kabul, the U.S. was unprepared. Is the scenario the media is creating of a Taliban back in power that U.S. intelligence now suddenly knows very little about and cannot do any surveillance of them, launching attacks against the U.S., how likely is that uh, scenario, in your opinion, that the U.S. media seems to be building during press conferences? I don't think it's a very likely um, scenario that the Taliban would uh, organize any attacks on the U.S. They're, they're not interested in, uh, um, in international terrorism. Uh, the, the terrorism that they did was really part of the war. Um, they're interested in uh, in Afghanistan and in in uh, now trying to rule Afghanistan. I, I think the concern is um, other groups in Afghanistan who might use Afghanistan as a as a place from where to plan. And the concern is uh, Al Qaeda. Um, concern is ISIS as well. Except ISIS is and the Taliban are um, are really enemies. And, and the Taliban, together with the Americans and and the Afghan government, have have. Uh, really hit ISIS hard over the last few years. Um, but there are now reports of possible 
cells, ISIS cells, who might start targeting the Taliban, um, which would be uh, the world, kind of an upside down world where the Taliban becomes the status quo and um, becomes uh, targeted with the terrorist attacks. Um, but yeah, I don't think uh, the, I don't think the the U.S. has much to fear from from the Taliban itself. Um, and yeah, I mean, if international terrorism wants to plan, they, they'll find places to plan. Well, there were also reports in the U.S. media this week that the Taliban had been uh, getting uh, closer and closer ties to the, to Al Qaeda, and I know that Al Qaeda's you know there are many branches of that, so I'm not too sure which branch they were talking about. But do you know is the Taliban becoming closer and closer to Al Qaeda? I don't know. I haven't studied it myself, and I know that the people around me have an incredibly uh, varied opinions about that. From um, they're they're incredibly closely uh, connected to um, no, they don't have links anymore. So I don't know it, um, and I, but I also know that it's a, a topic that's often um, there's a there's a um, a possibility of exaggerating it, and it has been exaggerated in the past by the Afghan government because it was a way to try to keep the international. Um, the community involved in Afghanistan um, by framing it as a threat for the rest of the world. One Doesn't last mean that's not the case, but but um, but that is that is a factor. One last question for you, Martine. We've been speaking with writer, photographer, and researcher Martine Van Baylert, co-founder of the Afghanistan Analyst Network, which you can find at Afghanistan-analysts.org. One last question for you, and I promise, Martine, we do this with all of our guests. Our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience might hate your response. How avoidable was the U.S. war in Afghanistan? After all, immediately following 9-11, President Bush demanded the Taliban, quote, turn over Osama bin Laden and all of his cohorts and hostages, to which Taliban leadership insisted on evidence of bin Laden's connection to the crime, at which point Bush said his terms were non-negotiable. And the front page of yesterday's New York Times reported how the Taliban were on the run in November 2001 and had been weakened so badly by the U.S. bombing campaign that it swept the Taliban out of power and put the U.S. back Northern Alliance in charge, that the Taliban were open for negotiations. Unfortunately, U.S. Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld said at the time, we do not negotiate surrenders. Couldn't this have all been avoided if the crime of 9-11 was prosecuted like a crime instead of reacted to with unnecessary and eventually fruitless wars? Yes, there were several places where um, things could have been avoided and could have been much better. And that was that was one of them. Um, yeah, bas basically trying to understand where the Taliban came from. Um, they did offer to have him pro uh, prosecuted, uh, but just not in the U.S. It's, it is very much um, the U.S. wanting uh, things to happen on their own terms and, uh, are, and, and kind of assuming that if the other side doesn't want to do that, it's because, they're, um, um, it's because of ill intent or because they're unreasonable. Or, uh, but yeah, that was one of the places... Um, there were several others also who the U.S. partnered with in Afghanistan. And uh, yeah, no, the, tw the last 20 years could have been very different. 
Martin, thank you so much for being on our show today. I got far more out of this conversation than I have from the last two weeks of reading the U.S. media. I really appreciate uh, your work and all the work of everybody over at Afghanistan-analysts.org. That's where people should find out, can find the best information, at least in my opinion, when it comes to Afghanistan. Thank you so much for being on our show today. Yeah, that was a pleasure. Take care. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is Hell of That Conversation with Martin Van Baylert of Afghanistan-analyst.com on Afghanistan. Made you mad or sad, gave you anxiety, was in some way enlightening to the point of deprogramming you from a previous belief or understanding you may have had or made you feel more educated or to realize that, yes, this really is hell. Show your appreciation by either becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell or go to this is hell.com and click on support and see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks for all of your support. Egon, please remind our listening audience what is this week's question from hell and tell us how they are responding so far. Well, Chuck, uh, this week's question from hell is, what is Chuck's password? (laughs) Great, great. (laughs) Which is going to be so fun to read because as we all know how passwords work, they're full of fun little weird punctuation marks. (laughs) And uh, let's get this started. We've got Don H, who uh, this one is punctuated by that O with the slash through it, E's with every accent mark. Two restricted trademark um, uh, signs, and he writes, once uh, deducted, it says, Workers of the World Unite. (laughs) Okay, all right. Uh, Martin F. has three separate passwords that that could be your password. All right. He's got Crapitalism69. My my favorite, personally. Uh, He has My Demon is on My Butt 420, (laughs) and... Gnome is gone insane! Exclamation mark. (laughs) Gotta love it. Gotta love it. (laughs) What is Chuck's password? This week's question from hell. Jeff C. uh, suggests 420 somewhere. (laughs) And I'm going to give you one more, Chuck, for your password for this week's question from hell. We have Zach N. who suggests at sign, dollar sign, dollar sign, word. (laughs) So that's all we've got so far? We've got a few more, but I, I, I want I want the folks tomorrow to have uh, have some enjoy this as well. So. <laughs> All right. So uh, speaking of which, Egon, who is on tomorrow's Wednesday's live one hour show at 10 a.m. Chicago time here at this is Tomorrow on Wednesday, we're going to welcome historian Edward Watts, who will be talking about his new book, The Eternal Decline and Fall of Rome. The History of a Dangerous Idea. It is a dangerous idea, and that book is wacky. It, it looks really fantastic. I've been, uh, it's, it's been on one of my many tabs that populate my, my computer <laughs> at any time. And Jeff Dorchin is going to be delivering a moment of truth. He sure is. Uh, his, uh, Jeff's moment of truth tomorrow is going to be... Oh, what does it... What is it going to be? Oh, it exposes the souls of pinker folk. That's right. Not finger poke. What the hell is that? I'm not sure I want to know, but tune in tomorrow and find out. You know, there's nothing quite like racism during your vacation to remind you that you really can never get away from it all, no matter how far you go. Case in point, my annual family summer vacation to Cottage on Lake in northern Michigan. 
Of course, racism comes as no surprise in that part of God's little mitten. Letters to the editor of the local paper, the Houghton Lake Resorter, allude to and imply racism regularly with dog whistles so loud any human can hear them. But I had no idea buying a Coke would provoke a racist response. So my nephew and I, we share a taste for craft soda. I know, snobby. We cannot stand pop that has corn syrup in it or any substitute for cane sugar, but we had no luck in finding any quality soda at any of the local grocery stores, produce markets, butcher, butcher shops, liquor stores. We looked everywhere. We decided we would take one last shot at finding good pop and went to the local supermarket to see if we could find any there. The pickings were predictably slim, but they did have Coca-Cola that was made in Mexico, which my nephew loves because, again, cane sugar, no corn syrup. So we grabbed four bottles, I got a 12-pack of beer while I was at it, and we went to the checkout. Our cashier was a senior, I hope, because if she was anything less than retirement age, she had a really really hard life. And having a real hard life is very common in this neck of the woods, which suffers from rampant poverty and inequality. So her age was uncertain, but my guess would be well into her 60s. At least I hope she was. I put the 12-pack and the Cokes on the conveyor belt. The cashier scanned the beers and pushed them aside without comment. That's when she started to scan the four Cokes one by one. Suddenly, she stopped inspecting the bottle very closely. She then looked over her glasses and said in a tone filled with disdain, Coca-Cola? Made in Mexico? You gotta be kidding me. Sure, I could have said Mexico has been bottling Coke for 100 years as the first Coke was bottled in Mexico in 1921, but I don't have a smartphone. I couldn't look that up. I could have said, why do you have a problem with Mexico making Coke or Mexicans making, uh, producing Coca-Cola? Or or are you simply opposed to globalization, capitalism, and free trade like I am, comrade? Instead, I quickly tried to deflect and distract. So I told her, yeah, Mexican Coke is great because it doesn't have corn syrup. It only has raw sugar. She stared blankly, so I asked a question that I already knew how she would answer. I asked, have you ever had the more syrupy Coca-Cola from McDonald's? She said yes, and I replied, Mexican Coke is just like that. And without missing a beat, the cashier said, really, does it come in Diet Coke? All I had to do was compare Mexican Coke to another all-American brand, McDonald's, and her racism subsided in favor of her love for syrupy coca-cola and mcdonald's apparently but the mere fact that she was originally so upset to learn coca-cola was being made and bottled in mexico well that was startling had nobody ever bought mexican coke at that store before i know that wasn't the case because it was prominently displayed on an end cap with a huge sign saying they're on sale for a buck a piece and it was clear that many had already been purchased and that whole display was in sight of the cashier So was she a new worker? Maybe. But I saw her a week ago, so she'd been working there for at least 10 days. Maybe it was the first person, maybe I was the first person, who ever dared to bring Mexican Coke to her register as she kind of oozed this condescending, judgmental disapproval of, well, everyone. I think you just avoided her as a cashier in general. 
I'm still uncertain, but saying to a customer who is buying a Mexican Coke at the store where you work, Mexican Coke, you got to be kidding me, cannot be good for sales or, you know, racial unity. The other racism I faced was not so subtle. And the cashier saying Mexican Coke, you got to be kidding me, was not subtle. Prior to going to the legal weed store in my attempt to buy legal weed legally, which I failed miserably to do and mentioned on yesterday's Monday's show, my girlfriend and I went to an ATM to get cash. The first lesson I ever had in illegal drug school was never take or write a check. Everything's done in cash. And there was no way I was breaking that long-standing rule simply because weed is legal. And in fact, it is because it is legal and not decriminalized that there's no way I would ever use a credit card while buying weed and somehow entering some database where my information can be shared. We get to, we got to the closest ATM. It's about a 15-minute drive from where we stay. Because again, we stay kind of out in the sticks. It was indoors in a small lobby, but somebody was already using the ATM. So following COVID safety guidelines and protocols, we waited outside. As the person exited, we got a very friendly hello. I said hi back, and they added that it was a beautiful day. Perfectly charming exchange. I went in, got my cash, exited and waited outside as my girlfriend did her banking. While waiting, a pickup truck pulled up. The driver, who appeared to be going for that Tony Soprano look, stepped out and immediately engaged me in conversation, saying, Well, it's almost over. I'd been thinking about the pandemic because of social distancing at the ATM and answered, I hope so. He looked confused and said, What? I repeated, I hope so, and I crossed my fingers, and suddenly... I was realizing he may not have been alluding to the coronavirus. He then asked where I was from. I told him Chicago, and I started to realize that what he was talking about when he said it was almost over was summer, not the virus. While I was realizing my mistake and how it led to his confusion, he asked me if Chicago was where I was originally from, and I told him I was born in Detroit, but we lived in East Detroit. And I wish I'd never been that specific, because the next thing he said was, and I'm cleaning this up for radio, and because what he said was awful, the soprano wannabe said, holy crap, did you know East Point's 60% effing N-words now? My mind was reeling because I could not imagine someone assuming that everyone is as racist as they are to the point they think it's okay to be openly racist to anyone who is white. He said something about how his old neighborhood in Detroit, State Fair, looked like a bombed-out Beirut, a reference that was either fully cognizant of Lebanon's current internal domestic problems, or far more likely, as there is no war or bombing taking place in Beirut at this moment, was a mere relic from the racist 1970s and 1980s childhood when the inner city was always being compared to Beirut as Lebanon was engaged in a 15-year civil war. Of course, I seriously doubt that State Fair is bombed out like Beirut because Amazon is now building a huge warehouse in the space that was the old State Fair uh, neighborhood. And you're not going to be building an Amazon in a neighborhood that resembles Beirut. In fact, the State Fair neighborhood and the adjacent Green Acres, Palmer Woods, and Sherwood Forest neighborhoods are some of the richest and nicest in the cities, with homes going anywhere from 250 k to up to 750000 and higher. The surrounding neighborhoods are where Detroit's wealthiest live, including the freaking mayor. In other words, they are the kinds of neighborhoods I cannot afford to live in, so I am really not sure when the last time Tony Soprano was back in the old neighborhood then he now fears so much. My girlfriend finally came out of the ATM. It seemed like her transactions took an eternity, and I told the racist 
prick that there was an article on the front page of that day's Detroit Free Press about the 2020 census revealing a demographic shift in East Detroit, now East Point, over the past 10 years. That story, unlike the racist, was about how East Point has become a tight, racially diverse community that is a safe place to live. I doubt he read the article because the accompanying images and quotes were of African Americans happy in their new, safe, closely knit community. But as I could, but all I could think about was this assumption that as I'm white and in northern Michigan, I must be overtly racist. Had he spent his entire summer up north talking openly about racism and everyone up there was fine with it? I mean, I know the area voted two for one, two to one for Trump, twice. But that doesn't necessarily mean you're an overt racist. So is the place where I go every year with my family? A hotbed of overt racism? Am I, by spending my money in the area, somehow supporting their racism? Look, I know it's impossible to get away from it all, but on vacation it would be nice to at least get away from public displays of overt racism. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Egon Sheely. Thanks to Martin Van Balert and Egon and Alex Jerry. Alex Jerry for uh, booking today's guests. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything, but the value of nothing. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell, and to support the show... Visit thisishell.com.